And I think the consultant as advocate for the existing leadership team is essential to putting the deal together. Hello, I'm Dave Gans, MGMA Senior Fellow for Industry Affairs, welcoming you to the executive session, a monthly discussion with a healthcare leader on a critical issue of interest to medical practice executives. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Robert Jackson, MBA, FACHE. Rob is a consultant in the MGMA Medical Practice Consulting Services and brings more than 30 years of leadership experience in healthcare, including almost 20 years as an acute care hospital CEO to his clients. Rob has extensive expertise in hospital and physician practice finance, having managed budgets of up to $250 million and negotiation of traditional and risk-based contracts for hospitals and physician practices. Today, Rob and I will discuss his observations on medical practice mergers and acquisitions and how hospital systems and private equity have different objectives when they acquire a practice. Rob, can you please introduce yourself and describe your background as a hospital CEO and your expertise in contract negotiation, practice mergers and acquisitions and how you built a successful integrated health system. Thanks, Dave. Um, as, as you mentioned, my name is Rob Jackson, and I have about a 30-year career in healthcare. It's spanned working in physician groups, insurance companies, independent health systems, and a large academic health system. I spend time working for the University of Pittsburgh and UPMC for, throughout the years, and most recently was president of two of their hospitals. So to give you a little bit of my background, I was a CEO at a small independent hospital for close to 20 years. And through the lens of an independent hospital, we spent a lot of time looking at how do we better manage, better sustain the services around the community that we serve. And that really was the introduction into how the, the mergers and acquisitions really become. The, the key to, thing that we realized was that you know, a lot of the services that the community needed, they weren't able to be sustained on their own. And they really required the backing of the hospital in order to put those pieces together. So over the course of about 20 years at that hospital, we went from being a singular hospital to creating a home health entity, creating a multi-specialty physician group, spinning off assets into a charitable foundation, creating a joint venture for hospice, and really looking to integrate all of those services. But it really comes back to fundamentally, you know, why do you do that? And, you know, I think through the course of our conversations today, we'll talk a little bit more about why that's important and why do healthcare entities, both from a direct care standpoint and from other parts of the healthcare continuum, look to integrate their services. We talked earlier about your experience in, in mergers and acquisitions. We know that the healthcare environment is changing and almost every day we hear of a health system acquiring or divesting a hospital or a medical group practice or two independent practices merging. After initial lull during the first year of the COVID pandemic, 2021 saw significant activity and appears that the pace of change is accelerating in 2022. There are a multitude of reasons why a health system or medical group would be involved in a merger acquisition. Rob, based on your experience as a hospital CEO who acquired practices 
and your current role as a member of the MGMA Medical Practice Consulting Services, can you provide our listeners with your insights into why medical groups and hospital systems are seeking new partners and expanding their scope and breadth of services? I think there's a, a multitude of reasons, and some are, are far more sexy than others. And I think post-COVID, one of the reasons you're seeing a great deal of activity is that some practices are no longer able to sustain themselves. And hospitals and, and other partners are recognizing that in order to keep those services in their communities, they're going to have to acquire and be able to financially support those. Fundamentally, when you look at M&A, it's always about competitive advantage. And I think many hospitals and other entities look at how bringing physician practices in particular into their family of companies really gives them a competitive advantage. And it's really, when you think about it, not unlike when the auto industry started to acquire its suppliers and they wanted control of their suppliers, healthcare entities want control of the referral pipeline. And they also want control of what the services are on the back end. You know, we're looking at a future where much of the reimbursement in healthcare is going to be based on risk-based models. And having control of the full continuum is really going to be something that's important today, but exponentially more important in the future. The other piece where we started with this question was, it's oftentimes an opportunity to provide a service that isn't sustainable otherwise. The, one of the best examples is, you know, behavioral health in, in many rural communities isn't sustainable on its own. However, a hospital would look to subsidize keeping that behavioral health component there because those patients then remain in the community in, in using the resources that they have. It's one of those pieces where, you know, if you've seen one merger, you've seen one merger. And every time that there is a, a, a merger or an acquisition, there's a different set of reasons behind it. You know, you gave several reasons why a health system would want to acquire additional hospitals or physician practices to gain an operational and financial advantage in a competitive market. So let's change our perspective and look at why independent physicians and medical groups may want to merge or acquire other independent practices, since we're seeing the creation of so-called supergroups, uh, especially in certain specialties like anesthesia, the surgical specialties, or internal medicine subspecialties. Uh, we've seen this in areas like dermatology and gastroenterology, oncology. So what are the reasons for this trend? And I really think that's the trend of the future. I think you're going to continue to see groups combine resources and grow. And I think behind that, one of the reasons is economy of scale. There's no reason to have three billing departments when you could have one. And there's basic co combinations that give you scale. However, the bigger piece is when you talk about, you know, specialties like anesthesia or the surgical specialties or the procedural-based specialties, for an insurance company to operate in a, in a particular area, they have to usually demonstrate to the insurance commission of that state that they have adequate coverage. The larger you build a supergroup, the more leverage that will give you with negotiating a contract. So if you are the only provider of dermatology services in a particular area and you combine with, let's say, the dermatologists who are in the four counties that surround you, 
suddenly now you're controlling a very important piece of the healthcare pipeline that an insurance company has to have to operate. All of a sudden, you can have a very different conversation with that insurance company that may go from here's what we're offering to what we can negotiate that makes sense for both of us. But there's also kind of a, a factor of having more physicians together oftentimes is an environment that it, it gives them partners, it gives people an opportunity to bounce clinical ideas. It can honestly improve the quality of care because there's oftentimes more physicians available to have those clinical discussions with. To me, the big three are the economies of scale, the leverage with contracting, and the ability to really in improve the quality of care and ultimately through improving the quality of care, oftentimes lowering the cost per case, which again is you know, behind all of these things that you know, we never can stray too far away from the idea that finance is part of the conversation. No, you made a real good point at the beginning of our discussion regarding economies of scale, and you gave a great example regarding why have three billing offices when you can have one. And I think the same thing applies in some of our new technologies. I've had discussions, I, th I think a good example with the urology practice executive on how their urology practice, which is extraordinarily large, has its own CT scan, it has its own lithotriptes, uh, it has been able to afford some very expensive technologies that a small practice can't do, and, they, and by, by being large, they're able to fully utilize those technologies, but also they, he talked about in the quality of care issue because the physicians and the technicians work closely together and the technicians know exactly what the physician wants every time. And he said, this was, they never saw this when they had to rely on a hospital system, for example, for these technologies. Do you want to give us some of your own thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that's a great point that, you know, once, as you build these larger groups, it increases their access to capital as well. And when you can start to bring some of those diagnostic services under the umbrella of the physician practice, it allows you to do things that you couldn't do otherwise. And just as you, the point that you're making, you have a technologist who's doing that specific procedure every single day. It's going to bring consistency and it's going to elevate that quality of care because everyone knows what to expect. Similarly, it gives it opens up the market to technologies because they now have access to capital that they didn't have before that they can now bring into the office. And, and I think that's important from the standpoint that you want to be able to create as many inflows of cash to the practice as possible by bringing those diagnostic tests that you weren't that were previously done elsewhere under the umbrella it again helps the sustainability of the group and, and ultimately you know, keeps it in the community to serve those folks. I think excellent points. Uh, you know, we talked about how M&A typically involves hospitals, large health systems, the medical groups, but you know, it, uh, recently we've also observed new players acquiring physician practices, uh, specifically health insurers. Also, private equity investors are becoming majority owners of what previously was physician-owned medical groups. In the past year, Optum, which is a division of the United Health Group and United Healthcare, 
has acquired numerous physician practices as well as hospitals and data analytics companies. Uh, Optum is also a significant investor in a number of digital health startups and other healthcare entities. Uh, Rob, can you give us some of your insights and why an insurer like United is so involved in M&A? Absolutely, and, and I think this is only the very beginning. You know, when you think about why an insurance company would be interested in owning a physician practice, the physicians actually are the controlling variable and ultimately what their medical costs will be because you know, nothing happens in a healthcare continuum without a physician order. As the insurance company acquires a physician group, they now have control over the primary driver of, of what their medical spend will be. Companies like Optum who, who are reaching into the physician market, reaching into the digital health market, they're looking at ways to control that continuum in a way that makes it the most cost-effective manner as possible. And, and I think the, one of the things you always have to keep in mind is that insurance companies are in the business of making money. So you always have to look at these acquisitions through the lens of how is that company going to make money with this? And particularly with the, with the physician practice acquisition, they now are able to put in clinical guidelines that will ultimately impact their ultimate medical spend. You have to have a certain amount of physician coverage to sell an insurance product. Ultimately, what companies like Optum can do is begin to assist United from the standpoint of having the most high-performing physicians in their network and help them start making decisions about how do they narrow this network? How do they create a more high-performing product with using only Optum physicians to support it in a particular area? As I said, this is only the tip of the iceberg. I think another merger that's interesting to talk about is in 2018, CVS Health acquired Aetna. And why would a pharmacy company want to acquire an insurance company? Well, ultimately, you know, controlling an insurance company the size of Aetna gives you an incredibly large footprint in order to begin to start creating clinical efficiencies and clinical protocols and how in accessing markets that you weren't able to manage before. So I think when you start to talk about these mergers, it, it's only the tip of the iceberg. There's going to be companies enter this mix that you scratch your head and say, why are they in this? But ultimately, the way to analyze these is you have to follow the money. And then if you're able to control your supply chain, how are you able to ultimately impact the profits of the, for the acquiring company. And looking at you know, how organizations can make profits through healthcare, because I think we see the same thing in another entry into the M&A market, which are the private equity investors. Essentially, private equity firms, they raise money from institutional investors, such as pension funds or insurance companies. They get their income from sovereign wealth funds, as well as individuals and for their purpose of investing in private business, growing them and then selling the businesses years later to generate a better return for investors they could get reliably from a public company or stock market. What are you seeing in this part of the M&A marketplace? Well, I, I think this is a fascinating part of the, the marketplace right now. When we talk about hospitals, hospitals by and large, 85 to 90% to of the hospitals in the country are non nonprofit. 
there are for-profit health systems. So when you look at their entry into the physician practice market, it's really about how do you create these physician practices in a way that will make them profitable and sustainable and ultimately scalable at some point in the future. I, I think it's interesting, particularly, I think it appeals to physicians that are at certain points in their career. You know, if you're a, a physician who is in the twilight of their career, an M&A backed venture is maybe not for you. It's really not going to be about slowing down and finding a, a, a jet stream out to retirement. These M&A acquisitions are, are really focused on high volume, high profit practices, oftentimes with the physician still have, maintaining some equity in it so that they would benefit from an ultimate sale. I think the key when you analyze those is it really becomes important for them to identify practices that have sustainability. So when we talk about those super groups, a private equity company is going to have a great deal more interest in a group of 15, let's say, podiatrists who can give them a geographic network rather than an individual podiatrist or acquiring a company that has anesthesia contracts at 20 hospitals versus a single anesthesia group. Because ultimately, they can grow the value of those supergroups. They can grow the value. And that's really what private equity is about. The other piece that's very interesting within private equity is that they tend to focus on specialties that bring assets that aren't traditional physician practice assets to the conversation. For example, a lot of times in, in gastroenterology, they have endoscopy centers associated with them which becomes a very intriguing market for private equity because now they can, they can grow the business at that endoscopy center. They can add physicians to the practice. Similarly, I'm familiar with an acquisition of an orthopedic group that had its own surgical center. Private equity jumped on that because they, it came not only with the physician component that made money from seeing patients, but also the procedural component. It's a very intriguing market. And I again, I think we're at the very beginning of really seeing what effect private money is going to have in the healthcare world. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. I think you're right that we've always traditionally looked at healthcare as almost closed systems that hospitals acquire practices, practices acquire other practices. We're starting to see that expand. First, the, the, the insurance companies. And I think the private equity is a great example of how other players are coming into the financing part of healthcare and then controlling organizations. Uh, I would like to spend a, just another little bit more time looking at M&A deals with physicians and, you know, and why doctors are really interested in potentially a private equity investor. And I'll raise another thing that I've talked to both private equity as well as physician groups is that a medical practice that's independent, a physician in that practice will spend their entire career building the organization. But when it times comes time for them to leave, there's typically very little buyout available to that doctor uh, for every for all the sweat equity that was put into the organization. But a private equity purchase of that practice provides that equity, you know, and gives all of a sudden there's a catch out for those doctors who've made those long term investments of sweat equity. Uh, 
Can you give us some more t- of your insights on why doctors would be interested in an M&A financed by private equity? Well, I think there's a couple of pieces that, that again, make this intriguing. And, and one of the pieces I touched on with when, when a practice has other assets, the, the private equity money gets more interesting when there is perhaps real estate involved, an endoscopy center or something like that that's part of it. You know, the, I think the challenge becomes that when, when an M&A investment is on the table and it's private equity, we have to be able to, to demonstrate to that private equity investor the sustainability of the investment. You know, to your point about sweat equity, you know, a lot of times you know, the physician, there's a buyout, but the challenge becomes if it's a smaller practice and it's one or two physicians, you know, they have all that sweat equity, but the practice does not have value if they're not in the practice. So I think one of the pieces that, you know, as a physician would look at this, you'd have to be able to demonstrate how your practice is sustainable beyond your involvement. And I think that's the real key to getting that big money buyout when you've come to that point in your career. Generally, that's about scale. Generally, that's about being, you know, the the managing partner who has put something together that absent them, it will continue on to be a productive and clinically sound practice. And, and I think that's the challenge. And, I, and I, that's why I said earlier that private equity money is maybe more geared to someone who is earlier in their career, who is really about the idea of wanting to grind it out every single day and increase that investment. The challenge becomes when you look at the back end of that a smaller practice with a physician in the twilight of their career is probably going to have more appeal to the hospital buyer than it will the private equity buyer. Again, I think it really comes down to if a physician wants to, to have private equity money behind their practice, I think they have to continue to really be ready to work. I think they have to be able to demonstrate how their model is sustainable over time. And ultimately, what are the intangibles that the private equity investor is going to get by acquiring that particular practice? And that's you know, market penetration, that's the reputation in the community, it's how populated a particular specialty is. All of those pieces go into creating that, that component of why they would want to have it acquired. I think excellent points, uh, especially the looking at the reputation organization as well as their facilities that come as part of the of the acquisition, because that's hard assets. You know, we've also talked about perspective of these various uh, entities who are involved in mergers and acquisitions. Can you give our listeners your insights into the different objectives a hospital or private equity company will have when they acquire a medical group? And in the context of how different investors have different objectives, how, what should a practice executive assess if a potential merger acquisition proposal comes from different entities? Analyzing any potential acquisition or integration or merger, and, and, I, and I hate to go zen on you, but a lot of it is, is culture. You know, one of the challenges I think that where a lot of integrations fall short is there wasn't a lot of foresight into does the way that we practice 
integrate with the way that the new owner wants to do business. And, you know, so when, when I counsel a, a physician on whether or not they, they should, you know, should go leave independent practice, should sell, and to what type of partner, I, I always like to have the conversation, can you see yourself being part of who they are? Do you have a clinical philosophy that's consistent with this acquiring entity? Unfortunately, a lot of times it just comes down to the ring of the register and whoever's going to pay me the most money I'm going to go with. And then but for something to be successful long term, I think you have to assess whether or not it's a good cultural fit, whether or not the physician is going to stay on. And what does that stay on look like? Is it an employment arrangement with a hospital? Is it continued employment in the practice with an equity position from the private equity group? And how does that fit together? Because the, one of the pieces that, that nobody wants to have happen is you know, the physician signs the dotted line and you know, gets paid only to have the deal not work. So I think a lot of due diligence on the front end has to be, what does this look like when it's done? And can I really, as a physician or as an administrator of a group for multiple physicians, Am I going to be able to operate in this new environment? And, and again, the amount of money that changes hands is, is mind boggling, but you have to step away from the dollars and cents and have that conversation about philosophy and how do these pieces come together? And you know, is the philosophy of the private equity company one that you know, they're willing to you know, invest and build over five years? Or are they turning, you know, do they need to turn a quarterly profit? What is the pro what is the hospital looking for? Is it looking to sustain services in a particular community? All of those pieces have to go into the conversation well beyond just exchanging financial information and trying to come up with who has the largest amount of money to, to buy. Very good points. And I think you the maybe one of the most important issues that you brought out was that the the deal is more than just the finance, more just the re immediate return to the physician owners. But you have to look, they need to look in the long term on are they going to be, want to continue to practice in this new environment? How is that going to affect them? And I think that's oftentimes a problem because organizations, they, they lack objectivity. They sometimes need an external advisor and which I think maybe this could be a good uh, time to look at a little bit different perspective and say, you know, if with all the changes in healthcare and many practice leaders are wanting to evaluate their future and if they should be looking at a merger acquisition, either to acquire other organizations or to be acquired by a health system, a insurer or private equity, that maybe they need an advisor. And can, so, Rob, uh, can you give your thoughts on what a practice or health system executive should be considering when their strategic plans are a potential merger or acquisition of other healthcare organization and how the uh, M&A deal can be financed? And also, what is the role of a consultant in, in providing that insight to the organization? I think having an independent third party to have a conversation with is essential to making any type of transaction work. You know, I have been an administrator that was part of a transaction 
I have been an administrator who initiated a transaction, and I've also been a consultant to some to, to groups going through that. And, and you need someone who can temper what's happening, who doesn't have emotion in the game. And it really comes down to having someone who can give you the advice or and have those conversations with you about, you know, there may be emotional value in this for you, but the reality of it is, is that it does not have economic value. And particularly in when you're looking at physician practices that have been part of a community for an extended period of time, and, and that the physicians are used to practicing in that certain way, they need someone who's willing to actually tell them, tell them the truth. And that's not always something they want to hear, that you know, there's not value in your charts. There, there is, but there isn't. Somebody yeah. has to pay for it to store them. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, you know, and, and again, that, that used to be a bigger deal when, when charts were paper. And there was always these debates about, oh, I want X number of dollars per chart. Now, the reality of it is that now is they can transfer, you can transfer all of your, your, your practice clinical information with the push of a button. So suddenly it doesn't have the same type of value. Absolutely, you need someone who can kind of shepherd you through this, who has been through it, who can, who will take your call at, you know, at nine o'clock at night when you're panicking because you're ready to have to sign the, the papers. And because again, there are so much more to it than just the, the change of money. And you have to look at what's going to happen to the employees of the practice, what's going to happen to, you know, the employee assets like the 401k, what's going to happen with health insurance, what's going to happen with the clinical information system, what are all of these pieces? And you need someone who, you know, if you're the, the managing physician or the administrator, someone to have that conversation with, did we catch everything we need to be thinking about? And I think that's really the vital role of the consultant when you talk about an M&A transaction. You know, you mentioned all the vital roles. In fact, I'll bring up one that I've, again, had discussions with executives that they talked about their post-merger environment, which usually involved job change. And that was because they felt that the better the deal they were able to negotiate with the health system or private equity that acquired the organization, it poisoned the, their personal wealth, so to speak. And therefore, you know, that they lost confidence in the new organization because they got such a great deal for their physician owners in the previous organization. And the consultant needed to be able to negotiate their parachute so they could leave appropriately. Uh, do you want to give some of your insights into these uh, this other role of a consultant being a third party on how to protect the executives in the or, and physician leaders in the ex organization that merges or is acquired. I, I think that's an important conversation, and, and you have to, you really have to have an advocate for the individuals who are part of the practice being acquired, and and that consultant can be that person for you. They can have those conversations where it, you know, if you as the administrator are being, it sounds very self-serving. You know, I need this X, Y, and Z, or I'm going to leave. Now, the consultant can actually have those difficult conversations with the acquiring party that so that you don't have to. And, and really, that's the role of, consult, of a consultant in these acquisitions is 
they can do some of that very difficult work and done in a way that allows it to to remain the parties at the table to be very still very cordial because the reality of it is is that you're really assigning a value to everything and everybody in your organization as part of this and sometimes that's not pleasant but again i think the consultant as advocate for the existing leadership team is essential to putting the deal together very good points you know rob there's so much more we could talk about but i know with your busy schedule your time is limited so is there anything else you'd like to add in summary of today's discussion well i think just two two pieces that i'd like to add that in one and we've touched on this as a theme throughout but a merger and an acquisition transaction is just so much more than the exchange of money physician practices always need to be tuned in to some of the for lack of a better word, softer pieces, but really understanding what's going to change, not just the exchange of money. And, and the second piece is, is that you know MGMA has a has a large number of folks on their team that can definitely assist with merger and acquisitions. You know, happy my, myself, this is the area that I practice in, but we have a team around us that can support doing any of these components and would really be enjoy the opportunity to, to help new clients really reach the best deal they can. Rob, thank you so much for your time. I know our listeners will find our discussion most interesting. I appreciate the opportunity to be here today, Dave, and I hope you have a great rest of the day. The same to you. Thank you very much.